Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. I sit down with Sean of North Coast Provisions, a provisioning center in Adrian, Michigan, where we talk about what it took for this group of family and friends to start a provisioning center in Michigan. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation if you are interested in the retail side of cannabis um, or a deeper dive into what it takes to become a licensed cannabis business in Michigan. As a fellow Michigander, I'm excited to sit down with you guys. So I'd love to just start off by just learning a little bit more about North Coast and kind of what your story is. Yeah, um, so North Coast, I would say, started um, two years ago. It was kind of my, one of my good friends from high school and college and my sister um, kind of had the idea to look into medical cannabis uh, even before the MMFLA. Okay. Um, and so we kind of were looking around. We're kind of all based out of Brighton, Chelsea, Ann Arbor area. Um, and Ann Arbor is obviously a pretty big hub for this industry in the state. Um, and so we were looking around Ann Arbor, Pittsfield Township, even Kalamazoo because I went to Western. Okay. And this was before the state had the framework for all the provisioning centers, so it was still kind of that gray area. Um, and so after looking into that for a few months, we kind of decided to wait until the MMFLA came around and there was more framework and it seemed like a, a safer investment, I suppose. Um, and so when they when it passed, we just found an attorney offline and went and sat down and like, hey, like we're looking to get into this. Um, you know, kind of what does it take? What are the What's the process like? Um, and kind of started it from there. And I think it took us, I want to say six months to put our application together. And it took the state uh, a little over 10 months to review it. Because like I said, it was um, just under 12,000 pages. Mostly just financial documents, um, background checks, things like that. But I mean, they do their due diligence for sure. And at the time you went through it, they still had the board in place, Correct, right? yeah, yeah, yep. We were approved through the board, yeah. So that I feel like is a major feat as well. I yeah, went to a couple yeah. of those board meetings and it did not seem necessarily easy to yes, get yeah. And it almost seemed like it just depended on the day and the mood for who they deny and mm-hmm. approve. It was kind of strange. So yeah, we were a little nervous that when we saw we were on the agenda, but luckily we, we passed, so it was good. At that point, did you know you wanted to be an Adrian? Um, trying to remember. Yeah, so we did We did know that we wanted to be an Adrian. If I, yeah, I should go back a little bit. So we, uh, last year, we had a temporary operating license in Delta Township for a caregiver grow in a commercial building. They had a city ordinance in place where you could have a caregiver in a commercially zoned building, which is kind of bizarre um, and you know, not very common. And so we, we had this building, 12,000 square feet, in Delta Township right outside of Lansing. And with the hopes of Delta Township opting into the MMFLA and then transferring that into a you know a class A, B, or C cultivation license, Delta Township did not opt into the MMFLA. We, we met with them multiple times, and they were just not going to budge on that. Um, and so we annexed the building into Lansing, and with the hopes of getting a license through Lansing. But then Lansing was a whole headache because there was lawsuits and issues with all of their ordinance and. So we eventually pulled out of that building in that location and uh, started looking at other municipalities and we would go to these town hall meetings sometimes with our attorney to just kind of advocate for opting in um, and medical cannabis and uh, 
in large, we mostly got like no's or, you know, like, thank you for your 30 seconds, see you later. Um, and then we found Adrian, and it really was just like a total 180. Um, the transparency and the uh, progressive mindset of the city has just been, it's been so easy to work with. Um, they were, you know, very, uh, the, they worked on the ordinance that when we applied originally, the ordinance was very similar to the state application. So it was almost like we just took one application from the state and then sent it to the city. And then they've kind of fine-tuned that and kind of um, trimmed the fat off it, I guess. And so it's a little bit more simple now. But at the time, it was very very similar to the state. So we kind of handed our, our application. Um, like I said, very easy. We could call the city attorney and she would answer her phone or the city clerk. And they kind of helped us through that whole process. Um, and so we had the building for provisioning um, for the dispensary here in Adrian before we applied to the state. Um, and then once we got approved, then we uh, went back and applied for the Part B, which is all like the narratives and, and all of that. They come in and do their uh, on-site inspections for security and safety and all of that. Okay. Yeah. And what was that process like, like the Part B process? Um, yeah, that one was definitely heavily uh, influenced by the um, our attorney group. Um, it's basically just like... They, they have a, the state has uh, all these narrative requirements for like how you um, handle waste, how you handle the product, how you handle staff, what kind of records you're going to keep on hand, um, requirements for uh, camera footage you have to have 24-7 for 30 days back stock. Um, yeah, and, and so like a lot of that we kind of had some help with the attorneys um, and submitted that. But it was relatively a quick turnaround. That wasn't as long as the uh, Part A. It was more of, I think it was like maybe just a couple months before we heard back on that. And then um, they send out state agents and they do a fire safety check. Um, and then they send out another group of agents and they do a security check, which really is just looking at the cameras, um, how many layers of security you have, um, and, you know, and just to make sure that staff and employees patients will be safe you know mm -hmm. um, and that was relatively quick as well um, they came out they had their notes we were able to get everything fixed that they all their recommendations within a week and then they came back out and it was good to go so that's not bad that moves pretty quickly that's what I've been wondering about <clears throat> how long you're sitting there with kind of like a ready-to-go building yeah and then the yeah. before the state gets into and I think it. it's getting even quicker now you know I think that they've really kind of dialed it in and um, have streamlined the process a little bit with removing the board and hiring more uh, staff. Um, I think when we when we did our security inspection, there was only eight enforcement officers, and I think they've since then they've hired on a few more. Okay. Because um, yeah, there was just eight to cover the whole state, so that's kind of a lot. You know, like our agent was, you know, oh, I'm in Adrian this morning, then I got to go to Detroit, then I got to go to Mount Clemens, and Oof. just all over. So. It's a lot to manage. For yes. Eight yeah. Agents. And it's all new for everyone too, so it, it you know takes time yeah it does it does and it I mean I've been paying attention to some of the reports they put out and even their yeah. sort of review processes are getting like you're saying much more efficient yes they're absolutely. able to turn around those prequels a lot faster yeah yeah than, than the 11 months that we right took for ours. right yeah. that's a long time yeah it really was to be sitting there and I guess it's because we were relatively I would say we were a medium-sized group because they have to review all um, partners who own 1% or more um, and their spouses so yeah. it was you know there was like 10 or 12 people on the application um, and I think they've changed that now where it's if you own 10% or more that's what I saw yeah so they they're definitely streamlining it a little bit yeah, which is good certainly make things easier especially for like yeah. the big outfits who have yeah. you know a ton of investors mm -hmm. because if yeah 
you'd be yeah. probably reviewing hundreds of people's yeah, finances absolutely. Right, and then their exactly. spouses. Yeah, and, then, and people who have, you know, investments and things all over the country. It's a lot to get all that documentation. Yeah, their finances know. are going to, their financial documents are going to be much more complex yeah, than yeah, the yeah. average. When we were going through ours um, and organizing, and I had like stacks of paper, you know, four feet tall all over my house and kitchen, and it was just kind of a... A nightmare for a little while, but that's really impressive, though, that you and Stacy did the application together. Yeah, um, our attorney group offered to do it, but it was going to be between forty and sixty thousand dollars. Whoa! And so we were like, let's just see if we can do this." You know, like Stacy used to work for uh, the state; she wrote grants. Um, she got her master's from U of M, and. She's like, we can do this. Let's just sit down and just grind through it. So that's what we did. Yeah. Saved a pretty penny by yeah, doing exactly. that. Yeah. What were you doing prior to North Coast? Um, so I've worked in uh, surgical sales for the last, like, three years. Mostly cardiovascular and thoracic instrumentation. Um, my uh, partner and I cover the whole state. Um, and so a lot of traveling, a lot of driving. Uh, Kalamazoo, Traverse City, uh, Marquette, Ann Arbor, obviously Detroit, um, and so I've been doing that for years, um, and working with a lot of like the thoracic surgeons who are working with like people with lung cancer, um, they would always kind of recommend, you know, kind of on the side, they're like, hey, I can't necessarily write you this card, but there are doctors who can to get your medical card, and we definitely advise you to do so. Um, and so just seeing that side of it too, it's starting to kind of bleed into the healthcare industry. You're hearing more and more about like medical cannabis and all the benefits. And so that was kind of interesting and cool to see. Is that what made you initially look into the caregiver license? Um, so my, one of our partners, um, he's been a caregiver uh, for years, um, going back to 2008, 2009 when it was first passed. Okay. Um, and so... He kind of has been in the industry in that sense for a long time, and um, I've just you know had conversations with him about it over the years, and um, I think it was uh, yeah just kind of him being in the industry and working in Ann Arbor, which is kind of this like hub of you know the industry and it, with hash bash and everything going on. You know, this is a good place to be. It was a good place to be, um, and then me working in the surgical sales and kind of hearing more about the doctors talking about this. And then Stacy owning up, she owns a home care business, and a lot of her clients have their medical cards, you know, for arthritis or what have you. Um, it was just kind of all that that combination of all of those. We were like, this might be a good idea. Point. And then shortly thereafter, we're like, all right, let's. We found the attorney and started looking into it, and and really, um, really dived in. So. And the attorneys you found, were they cannabis-specific? Yeah, yeah. We basically okay. just Googled, like, cannabis attorney <laughs> and found, you know, a top search. And uh, we're with a cannabis legal group out of Royal Oak. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're great. They're great, yeah, yeah. Nick's our guy, and uh, we've been working with him for the last couple of years now. So, yeah, really uh, nice to have. I mean, it, it would be really hard to kind of navigate the, the waters without an attorney, um, just with all the different bolt the state all the bulletins, uh, just kind of, yeah, reading through the laws. It, it's not something that you can easily do on your own, kind of, you know. So it's definitely beneficial to have. Yeah, it's very complex and, like, ever-changing. Yeah, ever-changing, absolutely, yeah. Everything, they're always kind of moving the target. So it's good to have someone who's constantly watching that, who can kind of update you and let you know. Yeah, and they definitely seem to be positioning themselves as kind of industry experts in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I even enjoy like their Facebook lives. Yeah, they, they do the video. Hit on different topics of the week. And yeah, and they have the map of all the municipalities and everything. Yeah. So yeah, they've been great. We've been very happy with them. Yes, yeah, so. so I spend a lot of time on their website. 
say. Yeah. I, I went to one of their, I think one of their very first small business conferences in Detroit. Yeah. And it might have been 2018. But yeah, so I met like Travis and Barton. Yep. Yeah, Tra- we, we know yeah. Travis, yeah. Yep, Travis yep. and Nick are usually who we work with. Um, but yeah, they, they helped us like, we went to a couple different town hall meetings with Travis. And I give the man credit because to get up in front of a group of, you know, city council members who are totally against this, and you can tell within 10 seconds whether or not they're actually listening or not, you know, and he gets up there and gives his whole spiel about why you should be accepting this into your community. And just to do that again and again and again when you know you're just, like, talking to a wall, basically, it takes guts, yeah. Yeah, it does, it does. And Barton seems to be really... um Focused on the sort of expungement aspect yeah, and criminal clearing side records, yeah, right, yeah, and like addressing yeah. the effects of prohibition. So yeah. I also appreciate that. Like they're definitely yeah. And now the state's doing. Um, they have those programs. We went to one of the um, meetings that they held last month, um, where if members, all the members of the ownership, if they have like criminal records for cannabis related, um, or they live in certain areas, there's like a discounted rate. So the state's even starting to, like, you know, kind of have these, like, give-back programs or kind of incentives for people who have maybe been wronged by the system at some point in their life um, to get into it, you know? Yeah, they so definitely do. They definitely need to. I think, I mean, Michigan honestly has impressed me with a lot of the way that they've designed yeah, the regs yeah. and the licenses and attempting to address some of the social equity issues. Yeah, they have the social um, equity programs, yeah. So they definitely seem to be a little more ahead of the curve than some of the other legal states, like California and Colorado. It seemed to be more of an afterthought. Like, yeah, okay, we've got yeah. this commercial market get started let's look at what do we do about these folks with criminal records and people who might not be able to participate i think one thing that it's the criminal background check requirements i understand them i appreciate like the intent behind it but then it does preclude people who have been unfairly impacted by prohibition from participating in the legal market at times yeah absolutely um and from our experience it really seemed like they just wanted transparency they just wanted you to be open and honest about it it didn't matter what because you know for the most part our group was pretty squeaky clean but there's some people who've had like some minor offenses from college or high school or whatever it was and it was really just like hey uh, let us know you know and i I don't have anything on my record, but and so I submitted nothing. But then I got a letter saying, "Oh, we found something," and I'm freaking out. Thinking, "What is it? What did I do? I don't remember this," you know. And it ended up being a noise violation from college that I got, you know, years ago. And so I just had to get the proper paperwork. But they just want to know, you know. They don't. I think to some extent it depends on what the offense was. But I think it, the best policy is just be honest and be like, "Yep, this is what happened. You know, these are the steps I've taken to change my life from that." Yeah. Okay. And you know. And they're good with that. So. Yeah, that was kind of my observation, too, when I would go to those board meetings. It was the people who tried to keep information out yeah, of the application. because they're going to find it, you know. They're going to look. That's what they do. So I know. It's the job. I know. I spent um, some time in D.C. as a consultant, <clears throat> and so I had to go through, like, security clearances with oh, right, different yeah, federal yeah. agencies. And so I understood, like, the level of information that they could find out about you. And when I would sit in those board meetings, I'm like, I wonder if some people just underestimate yeah. what government can actually I find out do. about your yeah, background. Yeah, because they really can find find out like anything they want yeah yeah i would sit down with these folks that were there yeah it (laughs) was i would meet in coffee shops like this with people that were like okay here's everything about you is this true is this true and i'm like yes 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 Mm -hmm. i did that yes i lived there yes i went to school there yes i know that person you know and so i'm like they'll find out what you have for breakfast and like what you searched last on your phone yes yeah they can anything anything that's with facebook or social media it's just like 
you're just tracking your life day by day kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but like you say, it's like they just want folks to be transparent. Yeah, just yeah. Just be honest. Yeah, yeah. As long as you're a good person and you're honest, it, I, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to get approved, you know. Yeah. You know? Even if you've made mistakes, as long as there's not like a, a, a pattern or a trend, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a one-time offense, or usually it seems like they're like, okay, you know, like things happen, you know, people make mistakes, just move forward, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, it definitely does seem like that. So for the listeners, what's the concept behind North Coast Provisions? Yeah, so we like to kind of uh, see ourselves as an educational um, dispensary. You know, we really take pride in all of our bud tenders being really knowledgeable about the products. Um, We find that a lot of our customers, our first-time marijuana users, just got their card. They're not really familiar with the products, the effects, what to take, what's re- you know what would work best for them, and so we're like really want to be there to kind of support them and and their discovery of cannabis and what it can do for them, um, and so we really try to focus on that. Anytime we get new products in, we always have meetings with the staff to say like this is what it is, this is what's in it, this is what we recommend it for, um, and just and then translate that to the patient because um, we do we see on average 50 new patients a week, 55 new patients wow. a week, yeah. And um, a lot of first-time people are like, yeah, I just got my card, like, not really familiar. I smoked a joint in college 30 years ago, <laughs> but haven't since then. So a lot of educating, um, a lot of learning. So we kind of see ourselves as, like, an educational spot. I think that's great because yeah. that is – that's definitely needed. I was just having this conversation last night. Like, bud tenders almost – this isn't a fair one-to-one comparison, but they almost end up being kind of like nurses, yeah. right? Because they're almost kind of like helping medical patients figure out what medicine should they have for their right, ailment, right. kind of what's the combination of whatever the products are, the THC versus the CBD, or if yeah. you want, you know, ingestibles versus smokables, whatever it is. Yeah, it's like the physical manifestation of WebMD. It's like, what's <laughs> ailing you, you know? All right, let's see what we have here. It is. Thing, so, yeah, yeah. Do the processors or growers help to educate you guys on what the products are? Um, some of them do. Um, I wouldn't say overall. I would say overall most of them do not. Um, we like to ask all of our uh, cultivators um, who we get flour from for, like, test results just so we can go through all that. Not just the THC. We want to see all the, the terpenes that they have, the cannabinoids, CBD, things like that. Um, just so we can kind of communicate that with staff and patients and know what's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not a lot. I think that'll come with you know as the industry kind of builds up and progresses. It's still kind of in its infancy here. So I think it's kind of this mad dash right now. Everyone's just trying to get to market. So um, I think more of that will come. Yeah, I agree. And at some point, hopefully, our medical education system will also include cannabis. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that's that's going to require cannabis to get off of Schedule 1 at the right, federal right. level. For, and, and then again, there will be like a, a time that it will take for that to fully mature. Yeah. But I think there will be a point when like doctors and nurses can be a little more involved. Absolutely, yeah. In yeah. what their patients are doing with cannabis. Because right now, it seems like doctors and nurses and things are, they might be aware that their patients are using cannabis or they might not. It's still kind of behind closed doors, mm-hmm. yeah, where it's like, hey, you know, go get your card kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that'll come. It's still probably five years down the road, ten years down the road. Yeah, but agreed. Eventually it'll get there. Agreed. It's going to take time. Yeah. It's going to take time. Yep. So definitely education and patient um, sort of awareness, probably helping to break down stigmas and things of that nature. Yeah, seems absolutely. seems to be pretty heavy into what you guys do. I even, I even see that through your social media presence in terms of just trying to educate folks on yeah. the benefits of cannabis. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the focus. Um, and we kind of were uh, surprised, I would say, when we first opened up, our expectation was going to be, you know, for our demographics was going to be most, we thought we'd see mostly like 18 to 30 year olds, you know, with two co- private colleges in the town. Yeah. Um, and just being that's my age as well. And most of my, you know, friends who are using cannabis are around my age. But it's really like we see, I would say, 50% are above the age of 45. Like it's a lot of this older demographic who are coming in like for the first time um, who aren't familiar with the products but see the benefit and are curious about it and want to try it. And so that's that's part of it too is like people are coming in not just looking for the strongest weed to get high. They're looking like, hey, you know, I have this arthritis or I you know, have anxiety or I have trouble sleeping and it's like what do you have what can I do kind of thing so mm-hmm. yeah it was kind of a kind of a surprise at first it's interesting yeah, yeah I've read studies about how that's the case in other states like Colorado California that have more mature markets that yeah. predominantly kind of like boomers coming in it is to it's the definitely market. boomers coming in yeah yeah which was a surprise but it's exciting to see that they're coming in and like curious about it you know? yeah for sure for yeah. sure because you know the pharmaceutical industry has had a strong hold yes, for have. a long yeah. time yes and that generation i think is much more likely to like trust institutions like the doctor said they prescribe mm-hmm. i should take it yep. even when there might be side effects or it's not doing what they want right yeah um i definitely i deal with that with my mom a lot she has a number of health issues and i'm like just try cannabis please yeah because you're yeah. taking this medicine and then this medicine to deal with the side effects yeah so. it's great by the end of the day you're taking seven pills or something right it's just like this doesn't seem right you know right and your poor body i just don't know if it can process all that yeah yeah hard to believe it does so how do you think things will change with recreational and like the type of consumers that you might have in this store and then do you think the education it'll impact how you're having to educate people yeah i i think it'll impact we'll have to do more educating because i know there's a lot of uh, boomers who are curious about it but they don't want to get their card you know Mm -hmm. they don't want that on their record and so once it's recreational i think they'll feel more comfortable to come in you know obviously um going from 300,000 patients to the population of michigan under recreational you're going to see a lot more of a i think a widespread demographic you know people coming in demographic coming in um It'll be interesting to see kind of how that develops because I, I know that <clears throat> currently under the medical there's been kind of this bottleneck where there's all these provisioning centers and there's only a few cultivators and processors and it's really like driven prices up um, which is unfortunate for you know both provisioning and for the end user the patient mm-hmm. so hopefully the state finds a way to kind of roll out recreational in a way that props it up better and uh, allows for more product to be available so the prices don't continue to go up. Well, what do you think about this recent bulletin that the state released where you can take, what is it, 30 days of your medical inventory and transfer yeah, it to recreation? Yeah, I saw that. That's kind of strange. What are you supposed to do with the rest of it then that you have? You know, that's interesting. Yeah. And yeah. the limitations on the products as well. Um, like, I think I, I read in one of the bulletins that the THC tinctures can have a max of 200 milligrams which is real, a, a low compared, like right now we have tinctures that are a thousand milligrams, you know, it's wow. a very popular product. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, that's gonna definitely impact it, I think, in a negative way, kind of those barriers on there. Um, and I, yeah, I don't really know what they mean by 30 days of your medical products. I mean, I assume you just take your whole inventory then, right? Like, right. I'd say, yep, this is all, like, right. what, do you, what do you do with it? You just dispose of it, I guess? 
Not well. That was my question. Is like because medical has it's like some of it. I believe is the limits fifty milligrams of THC per serving for some of the medical products. Yeah. And then, but then for recreational, it's ten milligrams of THC per serving. So it's like, can you take like a medical chocolate bar, for example, and make it a recreational chocolate yeah, bar? Is that's that a good even question. possible? Yeah, yeah. I, I've already seen like um, I just got an email the other day about. Um, a product, a brownie that they reduced the uh, milligrams in it. I think okay. their companies are starting to kind of trend that way with some of their products. I just, I wonder what will happen. Like, I wonder if it'll end up in the court system again because I'm not sure if the state deciding that you could take medical product and move it to recreational will impact patient access yeah. to medical product. And so then, will there be an injunction, right? Because we saw a Most lot likely, of injunctions yeah. Yes, yeah. Like, throughout like the standing yeah. up of the medical. And so, even when I read the bulletin, I got excited. But then I was like, is this really going to work the yeah. way that maybe the intent, the state's intent was behind it? I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that transition from medical to recreational for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah. And you, so when did North Coast open? We opened August 30th. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was okay. our opening day, yeah. Um, after we got fully licensed, uh, we just kind of buttoned everything up, uh, tied up a couple of loose ends. We invited the city uh, to come in, members of City Hall to come in and just do a walkthrough. We did like a lunch with them, um, which was really cool. They got to come see the building. It used to be, it's so funny because a lot of our patients come in and they're like, oh, I remember when this was a taco place, or <laughs> I remember when this was a tattoo parlor, I remember when this was a mechanic shop, and it's been so many different things. And so... It was just kind of funny to have City Hall come in and they're like, oh yeah, this it looks so much better. You know, I think it was vacant for some time before we purchased it. Um, and just to see the renovation of all these properties over Atrium, it's really cool to see. And I know the city, you know, that was the whole goal. That's the whole point of it. So Right, yeah, right. It's yeah. to bring back some Main Street business and yeah, get some yeah. of these like run down empty buildings with occupants. Yeah, yeah. They call it like the beautification of Adrian when you go in City Hall. We're working, the beautification of Adrian. We're cleaning it up. So yeah, no, it was, it was good. That's awesome. It sounds like you you guys have been really, I think, smart about developing relationships with the local politicians yeah. here and um, like city government workers. Yeah, we, we from the get-go, we said, why wouldn't you? And it just seemed like a no-brainer. You want to have those people on your side. You know, like we wanted to invite uh, chief of police, chief of fire, um, city hall members. That way, if there's anything that happens, we know who to call. They know who we are. Um, and that way, any, any sort of problem you might run into down the road, it's easier to meet that and find a solution and, you know, not have to kind of figure it out behind closed doors without the city involved, you know. So, yeah, it's always been, <clears throat> we've always tried to keep a good relationship with the city. Well, you're doing good work, too, because I'm sure for the city, you're helping to break down their own stigmas or thoughts about what it means to bring this industry into yeah, their town. Yeah. You're probably helping to increase their comfort level and hopefully create like a more positive perception Absolutely, of, yeah. of cannabis in general. So Absolutely, yeah. you guys are definitely helping other folks that are going to come behind you and need to go through the same process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're working right now. Stacy's um, involved in this uh charitable fund that she's setting up with uh, Flourish, one of the other license holders in town. And I know they're working with a couple of the city commissioners on this like give back program. I'm not exactly sure the, the fine details or how they're setting it up, but it's uh, um, this fund that basically that uh, our license holders will put money into and then the city kind of decides what to do with it. That way it takes it out of our hands um, and lets the city they, um, they've talked about taking in um, 
doing like these town hall meetings and taking in suggestions for how they like that money to be used or just kind of deciding behind closed doors but um, yeah that's just another way where we're trying to work with the city and with other license holders to kind of give back more to the um, to the community Uh, talked about hiring another um, police officer or you know putting it into uh, education and yeah so Stacy's way more involved in that she would have the fine details but that's just another another thing that we're trying to work on here and just you know stay in the community when we did the build out we did almost everything we could we did ourselves but anything we needed to outsource it was all local contractors you know we'd like to keep the money in the community kind of thing I think that's great. Yeah. You guys are true Michiganders, right? Yeah, like trying yeah, yeah. to build up your own local communities and have relationships yeah, yeah. within the state. I mean, not not everyone is probably entering the industry in the same way. Right, right. So. And it just made sense, too, because, you know, our electrician, um, local, local company, they're like, oh, yeah, we know the building inspector. Like, we're on good terms with him. You know, he knows our work. So it was kind of like streamlines that whole process. When they come in for inspection, they're like, I know this guy. I trust his work. Um, same thing with contractors, the plumber, everyone. The, every, it's a small community. Everyone mm-hmm. knows everyone, so it yeah. just made sense, yeah. It's got to be almost a little bit harder to be, like, an outsider who comes in and just tries to get it done your way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I talked to David Beckett <clears throat> with 710 Security, and they do sort of cannabis security all over nationally, and he and he was, like, Michigan so far is, like, the only state that they've been in where there's definitely, like, a Detroit versus everybody vibe. Yeah. He's like, you guys are very, like, we'll get it done. We know the people. I know the contractor. I know who I need to talk to to make it happen. And so he's like, I've had to develop really good relationships with general contractors on site because you want to work with people that you already know. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah, yeah, I believe it, yeah. But I, in some ways, like, cannabis legalization to me was about helping to, like, boost local economies and the state economy and so doing that like working with local people within the economy is one way to realize yeah like the benefits of having commercially you know regulated yeah yeah keeping the money here locally you know not only in the municipality but state as well you know you want it to be here to kind of yeah kind of prop up and and lift some of these dilapidated areas you know um so yeah i think it's it's all good all Mm -hmm. good things absolutely absolutely so you guys have been in this medical space, I mean, for a while, right? I know you, your, your provisioning center opened in August, but it, you've been in the application process for the better for about a year prior yeah, to that, yeah. at least. So how do you see recreational impacting kind of the Michigan market overall? Um, well, so we our plan is to apply for a recreational license with the state and then in Adrian as well um, it just makes sense financially it uh, the licensing is cheaper um, I think Michigan was smart to keep the excise tax at 10% because I've heard stories of out west um, in California where it's so high yeah, it's like 19% in some places yeah and so people are like I'm just gonna get my medical card because in California you can get one online and then I'll just go to a medical shop where the sales tax isn't as high um, and so I think Michigan did a good job it was smart to keep that kind of lower because you know, I would I would worry if it was 19, 20 percent, then people would just stay in the medical market. Um, or the black market. Or the black market, right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I hope that I, you know. I think sometimes when you see that transition from medical to recreational, there's a drop in quality of products. Yeah. Just, you know, and so I hope that that's not the case here. Um, Michigan seems like they. They've kind of seen the pitfalls of these other states who've gone through this, and they're trying to make the you know um, 
these corrections before it happens kind of thing, set it up, the framework. So I, I think it'll be great for the state of Michigan as a whole. Um, I know that you know the projections for this first year of medical, it's supposed to be like $180 million in sales tax generated. Um, and so that's great for the state, you know, and they project it to go up to like 280 by next year and, you know, year after year increasing over that. That's, um, that's pretty good. And that's not including your yearly licensing fee. Right. Or there's also a fee to the municipality you're located in, correct? Correct, yeah. So there's additional money coming in. Yeah, yep. You got to pay it uh, annually to the city and the state. Yeah, yeah. So lots of revenue generated, which is good. You know, going back to education, law enforcement, roads. You know, all good, all good things for the state of Michigan. The hot button issue in Michigan: yeah, yes. our roads. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I have people from out of state who are like, they can't be that bad. I'm like, oh yeah, you come, you check them out. Yeah, it it's crazy. Growing up here, I you know was aware of it and was like, oh yeah, ha ha, like roads are bad. And then I I moved to Colorado for a few years. <laughs> And forgot about it. And when I moved back, I was like, oh, my God, yeah. these roads are terrible. It's It drives me nuts. Same. It drives me nuts. Same. We just re- relocated back earlier this year. And I, yeah, same. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I'm going to lose a tire. Yes. Yeah. And if you're not aware that the roads are that bad and you're just flying down the road 60 miles an hour, I'm like, forget it. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. There's some potholes out there that will really get Ooh. you. Heading yeah. into Detroit. But they're starting to redo some of those roads heading into Detroit now. And they are nice. Yeah. Yeah, they are. So, hey, I don't know if that's cannabis money or not, but something is going, right? Yeah, something's working, yeah. <laughs> I'm all for it, so. What do you think will be some of the barriers to the cannabis economy growing here? Um, well, kind of how we touched on the uh, limitations on dosage. I think that's going to be part of it. Because um, I think there's a lot of people out there. Cannabis affects everyone differently, and everyone has a different tolerance. You know, we have patients who come in and they're like, I need an entire brownie to get the feel the effects, whereas one patient can come in and I just need like a quarter of that brownie, you know? And so I think that's going to be an issue. Um, and then also the way they set it up, uh, it, you know, I, I think I read this morning there's like 70, is it 70% of municipalities have opted out of recreational right now mm-hmm. around there? Which is, you know, kind of unsettling, and I don't, I don't think that's long term. I think, you know, Detroit has said that they just opted out, but I, they're with the plan to opt in. They just got to set up the framework um, in the ordinance. So just to hopefully to see more municipalities come online, so people aren't having to travel as far, so they can kind of stay in their community, get their medicine, um, and then, you know, just big corporate groups coming in and kind of buying up all the little guys you know hopefully you don't see too much of that moving forward I know that's kind of been the case under medical right now um, and that part of that is due to just like the extent of the application process it you know it, it, need, it needs a you need a lot of money it's not something you can just do on your own for most people like you need attorneys and accountants and consulting groups and it, it, it ends up costing an arm and a leg to kind of get into it so hopefully that kind of gets streamlined as more efficient through recreational, mm-hmm. which I think it will be. Um, and that allows for more small mom and pop shops to kind of open up and it's not like this big corporate kind of takeover pharmaceutical style of the cannabis industry. So. And you said the licensing fees are less in recreational? <clears throat> I believe so, yeah. So uh, for our provisioning center, uh, annual license is $66,000. And yes, it was, when we first started applying, it was it was kind of ambiguous. They said for a class A grow, it was 10000 and the other license, it was just subject to how many licenses you had, 
which was kind of strange. Um, so we were thinking, oh, it might be like 15, 20,000. And then they came out and said, oh, nope, it's 66. But I think under recreation, it's 40,000. Okay. Something I read. So a little bit less. But yeah, that's still a lot of money. You know, 66, 40,000, that's a lot annually. Um, it is. And so, yeah, I just hope that they're able to set it up. Because that was the intent, I think. They wanted it, to, you know, with the, the micro-business license and the, and the Class A's um, for small mom-and-pop shops to open up. Because it's been, for the last 10 years, caregivers that have been supporting this industry. And you wanted to kind of see them transition into the licensed, uh, you know, market. Um, and so I hope they're able to kind of streamline that and kind of get costs down so that's more accessible to more people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how do you, how do you see kind of the future of that patient caregiver model? Do you think Michigan will always have caregivers? Um, yeah, I, I think looking at other states, whenever a state goes recreationally, they do see a drop-off in medical patients and mm-hmm. renewals. I think there will always be a little bit of that market there. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, Michigan will probably be the same. You'll see a, a dip. You'll see a drop-off in, in cards um, and, and renewals and things like that. And more people, you know, under recreational, if there's shops, you know, uh, in everyone's municipality, everyone's town, community, then you don't necessarily need that caregiver. And I'm all for the caregivers, but there's a lot of caregivers out there that aren't having their products tested, and you don't know what's in that. So if my aunt or my grandma's going to use you know, medical cannabis, I'd rather be some coming from somewhere that was tested so I know it's safe, doesn't have pesticides, doesn't have, you know, uh, high mold yeast content, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I see the need for it, and I think it'll always be there, but I, I do think, like other states, it'll kind of drop off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw, I think it was this summer, there was like a fairly concerted campaign to kind of get them out of the commercially regulated market because there was one point where caregivers were able to drop product off to dis- to provisioning centers yes, and then yeah. it changed to where they could drop product off to growers and processors because yeah. then it got put through safety yeah. compliance testing right um and i've just heard i've just heard different stories about some some caregivers are able to do that successfully others kind of lose their shirts on it because they'll it hand is over very expensive yes um we work with a lot of you know we have caregivers that come in all the time who aren't familiar with the laws <clears throat> and they want to like hey i have flour can you know can they show it to you i'll give you samples and i'm like no i can't like it's got everything's got to go through a licensed facility now and it really is like and expen- the testing and the transport, uh, it adds up. So it almost doesn't make sense for the caregiver, which is unfortunate because that's kind of why prices have gone up like they have. You know, before the MMFLA, if you were to go into a provisioning center, they'd probably say they were paying between 1500 1800 and 2500 per pound. Now we're paying 4000 to 4800 you know, 3500 sometimes. And the prices re- and quality has really gone down, um, which is unfortunate. Is yeah, yeah. Do you think that the prices per pound will go down with recreational? I've heard different things. I've heard um, that, yes, prices will go down, but I've also heard it's going to be the same thing with the MMFLA. There's not going to be enough supply to meet the demand right away, and so it's just gonna, prices will stay where they're at or go up even um, for the first year or two. Just because, you know, right now there's... I want to say just over 300,000 medical patients in the state, and there's only, you know, I think around 100 licensed facilities, and they just can't keep up with demand. I talked to cultivators. We that's our bit the biggest issue with our provisioning center is finding flour. We opened up with two strains on our shelf because I just couldn't find any, 
and um, we call people every day asking and there we a lot of the times we'll get no you know like we're booked out for the next four harvest you know you will get you in a queue wow. or you know call me back in q2 or q3 of next year kind of thing and so that's really been that's been the hardest thing is trying to find like flour and we're buying flour blind like you don't get to see it you don't get to see test results you just got to buy it because if you can find it then you just it gets snatched up right away um, and there's definitely from my perspective it's been a, a huge drop off in quality um, and a lot of that is just you know the transition from small batch caregiver flour to this large scale industrial flour yeah. and then also the testing is really uh, hindering that as well with Michigan's thresholds on um, mold and yeast content it seems to be the big one because Michigan has some of the stringent most stringent yes, standards yes yeah my understanding is some states out west they don't even have thresholds for mold and yeast there's certain types that they look for um, but there isn't this threshold that Michigan has and so a lot of growers are not passing this test and then they're having to uh, remediate their flour and turn it into concentrate or um, other methods of kind of getting that mold and yeast out of there. Okay. So is that why, I guess, forgive my ignorance, but I don't understand why there's like a, a lack of flour in the supply chain, but there seems to be enough of like the processed goods. Or is that, you might need to help me here. I hear horror stories about not enough flour on shelves, and yeah. then I just wonder if it's like, is there like a push to produce like edibles and ingestibles and oils at the expense of flour? No, or is it the I, testing It's issue? the testing, yeah. I mean, We've, we've spoken with a few cultivators. Um, I remember one, their first three harvests, none of it passed. And so they're just forced to turn that into processed cannabis, uh, you know, con extract, shatter, wax, live I, resin. How does that help with the mold and yeast? Uh, just the way uh, they're able to filter through hydrocarbon extraction, they're able to pull that mold and yeast out. I don't know the details, I'm not a chemist, but this is just, you know, my limited understanding of it um but yeah they're just and there's a lot of a lot of these growers that are coming from out west you know these big corporations they're not used to those thresholds so even them are having they're they're even having a hard time getting their flower to pass um and there's way either you're remediating it and turning it into concentrates or there's these machines these ozone machines where it kind of blast the product um and uh kills all the microbial life but that also degrades the THC and the terpene profile. So that's why you see, even if a flower is, is past test, it's the quality is going to be really low. And you can kind of tell when something's been, you know, remediated because it, it looks like it has. It's, you know, it looks degraded. So, yeah, that's definitely been a struggle for, for growers. And I think that's part of the reason why there's this uh, lack of supply, unfortunately. Yeah. Is that is that still a struggle for a provisioning center? Yeah, yeah. I... <clears throat> Every day I, I call trying to find flour and it's it's hard and you know there it's all over it's four thousand or more you know and it's just so hard to justify buying that you have to you know we our flour in our shop is kind of our loss leader because it's the number one thing that people come in for but you know we don't make any money on it because I can't charge patients eighty dollars an eighth sixty dollars an eighth they're not going to pay it uh, and they shouldn't have to. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely, it's getting better and prices are starting to drop a little bit and I'm getting, you know, and that might be more supplies coming to the market or I'm just getting to know more people within the industry. Um, so it is getting better, but it is definitely still seems to be the biggest issue, I would say, is uh, the lack of like quality flour that's passing test. 
And why the having to buy sight unseen and not see testing results? Is that just the nature of how things are working right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just cultivators know that they don't need to send you those test results. You're going to buy it regardless because if it's available, you're going to you're going to take it. Um, I spoke to a, a grower that um, had 10 pounds and they were asking 4400 and it tested out at 10% THC which is really low and I was like Ugh, I don't know if I can justify that I think I'll have to pass and then 15 minutes later I was like oh maybe I should just to have it on the shelf called them back and they're like it's already gone I've already sold it so wow. sorry so that's how quick it's going um, and, you know, we, you have to get on this list and you got to beg and plead to get flowers sometimes. And that's and that's the reason you want to be vertically integrated, you know, to be able to supply yourself. But, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think a lot of it is the transport. Transport fees are really expensive. And so... Really? Yeah, yeah. Transport is not cheap, yeah. To have something driven from Jackson to Adrian can be $300, $400. How, like, much are they transporting? Oh, that depends. I mean, as much as you want to order. So, like, when we first got in, we, we didn't... We weren't aware of how much those fees were going to be. And so, like, we had... And we're a small mom-and-pop shop. We didn't have a million dollars to buy stock up on inventory. So we had, like, an order... For some edibles, that was four hundred and twelve dollars, and the transport fee was three hundred and fifty. And I was like, "Oh my god, I just doubled the cost of that product for us," you know. And so there was a little bit of a learning curve there. Um, and so you try to like, you try to wait until you can purchase enough to where they'll either cover the transport fee, or it doesn't impact the, that price point per unit. Okay, you know? but the grower, the process will cover the transport fee yeah. if the order if it's is above like, a certain threshold. Yeah, Got it. yeah. And some of them are like, you know, I'll cover transport if you buy X amount of, of edibles and X amount of flour. They all have kind of different, you know, and some of them don't charge regardless. It just kind of depends. But I think that's part of the reason why. Um, Do you know how much safety compliance testing is? Like, do you have any insight into... Yeah, it's pretty expensive. Um, I know for concentrate, it's like $700. So pretty expensive per strain, you know, per strain or per, you know, concentrate. Yeah. And for the caregiver, it's really hard to get their product into market because, you know, I always tell them, like, if you want to do it, you need to go get it tested yourself first and to make sure that it's compliant because you don't want to send it to this place untested, have it fail, and then it has to be destroyed or, exactly. or you know, turn into concentrate. So go get it tested yourself. If it passes, then you contact the processor. They take it in. Then it's got to get tested again. You got to pay for that. And then you got to pay for it to get transported and it... It ends up being, you know, you don't really, you, you lose, you lose out on it. It doesn't make sense, you know, for small, small caregiver operations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I wonder how, like, how those things, over time, like how the pricing of some of that yeah. will change. Yeah. I could kind of see the safety compliance being a little more expensive because there's sort of like scientists in a lab, right? right? There's probably, like, probably the equipment that they're investing in and the talent they're hiring isn't cheap. Right. Um. But if it's driving the price of the product up, then yeah. it's going to be a challenge for everybody. And if there's like a bottleneck um, at the testing labs and then you can't get things on show. Yeah, that's part of it too. There's only a few licensed labs in the state. Um, and especially after Iron, La Iron Labs got shut down for, you know, uh, what they had going on. It kind of, yeah, bottlenecked everything kind of at the lab. We were hearing two to three weeks for wait time on getting results back. Um, so that affects it as well because if you harvest, you got two weeks to cure the flower, then it's got to go to testing, and 
a lot of the times it doesn't pass the first time, and then they got to remediate it, and then send lab test, you know, send test results in again. There's product in again to be tested, and so yeah, it's a it's a long process. Yeah, inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if Michigan will change the standards, like on the mold and yeast specifically. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did, just because it does seem a little bit extreme. You know, personally, I'd rather smoke flour that has a little bit of mold and yeast than like a pesticide. I'm more worried about the pesticide side of things. Um, and, you know, you don't see it in other states as much, um, this, the threshold that Michigan has. So it'll be interesting to see if that does kind of change over time. Yeah, because there does seem to be a lot that Michigan's doing very smartly. Yeah. Like the excise tax and things. So yeah, it's like, yeah. I wonder if at some point they'll have to look at that and say, maybe we set these thresholds a little, a little too, too high. low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, a little too low, I guess, yeah, actually. Yeah, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it really seems like our knowledge of the cannabis plant is evolving. Right. right. Like we've there's like sativa versus indica, which has been like this primary way that we've kind of thought about right. cannabis. But I feel like things are getting much more like sophisticated and complex in terms of how we're talking about the plant, how we're kind of classifying its effects. It's not sativa versus indica. We got right. these terpenes now. We got camovars. We got cultivars. Things of this nature. So what I guess what are like what kind of light could you shed on what maybe we should know about the cannabis plant as like patients are consumers when it comes to all these different terms yeah and what we should be thinking about from like a consumption perspective it's definitely true that you know kind of the uh archaic i guess archaic way of understanding is this sativa indica um as you stated um and we definitely try to talk more about terpenes and terpene profiles um our caregivers that you know are part of our team that we're operating in the old um before mmfla the last couple of years, we started to get, te- uh, when we would get our stuff tested, we would ask for a terpene profile so that we could see what's in these, because it isn't gonna, you know, you can have an indica that isn't really gonna feel like an indica because it has a different terpene profile, you know, whether it's got a lot of pinene or limonene or uh, mycene, that's what's gonna really dictate what that plant or what that flower does for you. Um, and so that's part of the reason too why we ask cultivators and a lot of them don't get those full terpene profile testing because it's an additional cost okay. and it's not necess- it's not required so but some of them do and it's nice to have that because then you can kind of talk about okay this is what's in this flower this is what's in this you know these are the compounds um, and this is the, the effects associated with that so if you're looking for something for anxiety or you're looking for something to at nighttime you know with a little bit of a sedative or you're looking for something for like more uplifting you can kind of point in the right direction as far as not just indica sativa but like oh this one is heavy and, and pining it's going to give you the energy it's a good you know sat- you would call it a sativa you know so i think more of that is coming <clears throat> and i think that's the right direction to go just because that it's a it's a more clear understanding of what you're actually smoking or consuming you know is sativa and indica like even accurate doesn't really seem like it anymore. It seems like most things are hybrids anyways. Um, it's kind of hard to find a pure sativa or a pure indica um, these days, it seems like. And for the most part, I mean, yeah, if you pick up an indica and get it tested for its terpene profile, it most likely will have uh, terpenes associated with indicas, but you will find some that do have um, more sativa-dominated uh, terpenes, I guess you would say. Um, but it really, I mean, it all depends on what that was crossed with, what that you know that that specific phenotype of that because you can get you can have the same strain but four or five different phenotypes they're all going to have 
different terpene profiles. Cannabis is like one of the uh, more unique flowers, you know, where it has such a wide range. You can have over a hundred different terpenes being active in, in cannabis where you don't see that in a lot of other plant life. Interesting. What's yeah. a phenotype? Um, so that's just a different, uh, it's, it would be the same. So you could have like chem dog, phenotype one, two, three, four. And it's the same cross, but you might just get a different genetic makeup of it. So it'll just be, the plant might look a little different, smell a little different. And that's just the terpene profile that makes makes up that plant. They're all a little different, but it was the same cross. You still took this, the same two plants and crossed to make that chem dog. That's just different. It just came out a little different. Came out a little There's different, slight yeah. variation. So how, is it possible then to have... It doesn't seem like you could have like a lot of consistency, I guess. Like if you're going to crossbreed, you don't know if you're going to get this exact result. You might get some kind of family of results. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely not an exact, yeah. You have an idea of what you're going to get, but you don't know, yeah. There's, there'll always be those little variations. I got you. Yeah. And do you, so for the licensed growers that are growing in these big facilities, um, what do you think are some of the challenges for them being able to kind of like grow quality at scale and to be able to get the types of products like the phenotypes the terpenes that yeah. consumers or patients are well you can for. always most um most growers use mother plants and so if, and they take clones off that mother plant so that's always going to have the same it's always going to be the same phenotype okay when you're popping from seeds or you're, you're creating new genetics that's when you get the different terpene cannabinoid makeups um, and so that's a way to kind of keep it consistent. It's always going to be a little bit different depending on how that plant's grown. You know, light, nutrients, soy, all of that affects that. Um, but that's the way to kind of get it consistent as far as um, what terpenes are in it. You just, you're taking clones off a mother plant. Okay. Yeah. So is it easier to grow from clones than it is yeah. from seeds? Yeah, it's easier. Okay. It's faster. Yeah. And it's just a way to keep it consistent. Um, and make sure that you know you're putting out a, the same product each time. There's always like you know we've gotten uh, a strain Zuzu number nine. We've gotten two batches of it, and they it, totally different test results. Um, and same thing, a lot of people grow Gorilla Glue four because it's such a popular one. And uh, every time you get it, it's a little different. You know, everyone grows it a little different. Everyone's got a little different cut of it. But within your own facility, most people just use mother plants. It's much more efficient um, than seeds, and it's a way to keep your your, your Gorilla Glue is always going to kind of be the same, give or take, you know, a slight variation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do the how do the state requirements for the licensed facilities impact the cultivation process? Um. Well, I know it's a it's a totally different game than with provisioning, just because it's such a there's way more um, involved in it. You know, provisioning center, the retail side of things, it's kind of you know, you have your sales floor and you have your safe room and staff area, and, you know, for cultivation with all the lights and chemicals and everything, it's, they're much more involved um, in making sure that everything is up to code and everything is, uh, you know, secure, safe, all of those, um, all those things. Um, and I think the, it's kind of funny because for a class A grow, when we were looking at it, the state requirements for um, liquid capital, I think it was 150000 And for a provisioning center, it was, I want to say, two hundred and fifty or 300000 which just seems totally backwards because the cost to outfit a grow facility is tenfold what it would be for a provisioning center. So this, it was kind of funny that the state had it set that way 
um, because yeah, just everything that goes into fire suppression and lighting and environmental control, fertigation, irrigation, all those things, it's just, it's it's not an easy, it's not a cheap thing to do, it's very expensive. Um, especially with the test requirements, you need to really make sure that you uh, have total environmental control over your facility, otherwise things can get out of hand, temperature, humidity, things like that, and then your flower's not gonna pass, you know. How do you control things like that in a large building? Um, so we have a, we work with a consulting group out of Colorado called Urban Grow, okay. and they kind of help navigate that water for us, um, letting us know like, so there's different companies such as like Argus or Previs um, or Dosatron, and those are machines that you'll use to uh, feed the plants. Um, and then there's different types of HVAC systems and uh, dehumidification systems, Quest, um, being one of the popular ones, and you, you're gonna just use those systems, and they all kind of work together um, to control that room, control temperature, light, humidity, all of those things. Okay. Yeah. And then does it help to have like less people involved in the growing process, or is it not necessarily? Yeah, I mean, you don't want to have too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, and it's nice when you're dealing with 1,500 plants up to, you know, some of these places have 18,000 plants, yeah. you know, you need to have a lot of automation, otherwise you never get done. You know, if you're hand watering that many plants, you'd be there for a week. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's a way to stay consistent too, you know, every plant's getting the same amount um, of each thing every day. Um, so there's definitely a lot of automation required. Um, I think in our plans we are projecting like 12 to 15 employees for cultivation. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. And you are you are applying for the Class C license? Correct. Yeah, okay. Class C, 1500 plant okay. permit. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. How do you think that the cannabis products that we're seeing now are going to evolve? Well, I think you'll see more of a push towards terpenes as opposed to THC. Still right now your average consumer is coming in and asking what's your highest THC content, you mm -hmm. know, because that's just always been the, the question to ask. Um, and I think over the over time you'll see them coming in saying like, hey, I'm looking for something with a lot of pining in it. What do you have? Mm. Kind of thing, you know, that's yeah. what I'm looking for. Um, and I think you'll see with the concentrates just more development as far as dosing and recommended dosing because it's still so young and still kind of in its infancy where it's just kind of an educated guess as far as like what's going to work for you and everyone's so different mm -hmm. it's hard to say like this is the recommended dose for everyone across the board um, so I think you'll see a little bit more specialized like bud tenders and processors and there'll be a little bit more transparency and education in between um, you know cultivation processing and provisioning all the way, you know, through the bud, um, through the bud tender to the patient, as far as like, okay, so th this is what you usually do. You usually eat edibles. You usually smoke, you know, and then okay, let's figure out what dose is going to work for you. Um, I think there's going to be more of that, like specialization and more customization, as far as like what program or what products are going to work best for the individual, as opposed to just kind of a blanket. This is the dose that's that you exciting. should take. You know, yeah. I think that's a very exciting feature. Yeah. Um, so you guys have provisioning center in Adrian. You're in the process of building out Class C grow facility. Mm -hmm. Do you have plans to also apply for a processor license at any point to be yeah. fully integrate, vertically integrated? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, when we applied to the state for our Part A, we capitalized for five licenses just to kind of um, give ourselves the the wiggle room to kind of play with that. And you can interchange um, with the state. 
So we got approved for a grow of any size, a processor, and three provisioning centers. Oh, wow. We could go in, and it's just as simple as checking a box and writing a check and say, oh, we don't want the processor. We're going to do a fourth provisioning. Um, but we did get approved for processor, and we would like to bring that in-house. Um, we know we've worked with a uh, caregiver processor for the last few years um, who we'd like to kind of partner with and, and bring in-house to uh, be fully integrated there, vertically integrated. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. You guys are making a lot of like big moves in a short period of time. I'm sure maybe it doesn't feel Sometimes short it to doesn't. You, right? Yeah, sometimes it because doesn't. Because you've been in it for a while, but yeah. to to have like a provisioning center that opens in August to like moving towards kind of a vertically integrated model, I think is really exciting. Yeah. And we we kind of plan to do kind of one license at a time. Um, you know, like like we were talking earlier, it, we're a more of a mom and pop. We don't have Ex, you know, we can't just write blank checks. We weren't looking to just go all out right away. We kind of wanted to be more of an organic growth and kind of start with one license and then, you know, add another one, then add another one and just kind of let it go progress naturally as opposed to just kind of going all in right away. Um, yeah. And so far, things have been going well. So Yeah, personally, I think that's very smart. Yeah, yeah. Keep our overhead down. Um, you know, we did most of the build out and and did most of the application that anything that we could do ourselves we'd like to do ourselves just to kind of save money and and, and not come in with so much debt or so much overhead so. right right that's yeah that's what yeah personally like that would help me sleep at night a yeah, little better absolutely. to take that approach yeah, versus yeah. having like a huge capital outlay and then trying to turn a profit off of that yeah and yeah. then operating in the red for a number of years would right i know it might be just a reality of any industry that you enter and probably more so with cannabis that it takes a little bit to turn a profit um but it, i don't know it would be hard that'd be hard to to, to be in that space for multiple years yeah um, <clears throat> yeah and that's kind of that was our thought too i mean when we were first looking and and, and speaking with investors we had offers for people who would come in like, yeah, let's just do it all. Like, here's $10 million. And we kind of sat back and like, that's really enticing, but maybe that's not the approach for us that we want to take. You know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to overextend and, and, and make all these promises for an industry that's so young and you don't know where it's going to be six months, a year, or three years from now. Um, I think, you know, we kind of just said, let's try and do this more organically in-house and let it grow naturally as opposed to just like throwing money at it and seeing what happens kind of thing yeah what do you think it is about you guys that helped you kind of have that perspective um i think just that it's like a family and friends run you know it's all like our money so i think there's a little bit more passion and and, and concern about how every dollar is spent you know we were very uh frugal when it came to uh you know the, our build out for the provisioning center and wanted to make sure we kept track of every dollar we spent because it's our money you know mm -hmm. and it's it's a lot easier to spend someone else's money than yours you know <laughs> <laughs> so that definitely helped and it's my family's money too so it's like i don't want to you know spend my sister's money um you know on something that is not necessary um and so, yeah, I think just the fact that it's a small family-run, family-friend-run thing, it's, it's definitely kind of the backbone of why we, we decided to kind of do it the way we are. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. How else does, like, being a family-run business impact sort of the values of North Coast or the way that you guys do business? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those, the values of just, like, being a family-run, friend-run thing, they, they kind of transition into how we deal with our patients at you know we like to
kind of see our patients as part of our family in a way. You know, like we are like, oh, hey, you know, so-and-so, how was, you know, that edible last week? And we want it to be more of a personalized thing. Um, and that's kind of how we set up our shop as well with, like, we three identical stations, and we call them patient consults, consultants as opposed to bud tenders so that it's, like, an individualized, like, more personalized experience for a patient who comes in. Um, where they can sit there and, and take the time, not feel pressure, not have people around them, and like and actually find what works for them. Um, and so that's you know I think that kind of translated from us just being you know a family-run close group, all Michigan-born, very you know always been very close, all live within 20 minutes of each other, um, and that all kind of transitioned into um, translated into the patient experience, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Has um, has it been fun to be like all family kind of friend run? It has its ups and, and downs. This yeah, 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 definitely. Um, you know, it's always nice to work with your friends and family. Obviously, there's there's pros and cons to that. For sure. Everyone's got an opinion about every Instagram post, but um, no, overall, it's been a great experience, and I love being able to work with my friends and family every day. You know, it's and everyone has the same goal. Everyone wants everyone to succeed. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been really good so far. Has it changed your guys's relationship as family as friends overall? Um, a little bit. I mean, it, it it's uh, a little bit of adjusting seeing my sister, you know, four or five times a week as opposed to just talking <laughs> to her on the phone once or twice a week. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's been really good. It's 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 been a good experience, and I wouldn't change it. You know, if I were to go back, I would pick the same group of people. Um, it's been it's been really nice. Um, yeah, it almost sounds like there's like a deepening of like love and respect because like you got into this together. Yeah, yeah. It's and so like you're like learning together. Yeah, you're yeah. probably learning how to like interact with each other. Yeah. In a business setting, and so I just wonder if it's like helped grow, like love, respect, compassion, kindness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 a lot of that is everyone has to, you know wears different hats all the time. You know, we all have like our kind of set roles, but at any given moment, it's like someone else can fill in and do this or that. And we all like, you know, understand and respect and love each other. Where it's like you you don't have to worry about this not being taken care of because you know who's going to do that. You know, you can kind of rely and mm-hmm. lean on everyone in your group, which is nice. You know, to be able to to know everyone at that level and um, feel confident and comfortable with anyone doing any specific thing. For sure. It's a huge divergence from being in like a more corporate kind of office setting and having to yeah. interact with coworkers or supervisors or whatever, right? That like primarily professional relationship, sometimes I found it to be, it can be challenging because you don't really know people that well and then you're not sure how far you can trust them. Right. Uh, but with family and friends, I don't know. I just think there's like a different relationship there. So it's, would, to me, it seems like a positive to go into business with family friends as long as, right, like you're <laughs> able to have the tough conversations, you're all yeah. able to execute at the yeah. same level, you know, you all kind of have the, a similar sort of vision you're driving towards. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always ups and downs and people have uh, you know, different opinions on a lot of things. Um but yeah, as long as everyone's, you know, and it is, that's the case. Everyone has the same goal, the same vision, the same drive to make this succeed, to want this to succeed. And it's it's really nice because, um, you know, everyone is is working at the same thing and just kind of pushing it forward, moving it forward. So it, it is comforting to know that 
everyone on the team has that same goal in mind. You know, no one's just here to collect a check. Everyone wants us to succeed, you know, yeah. for the same reasons. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It seems like it takes a little bit of ego out of the pitcher, too. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It's like yeah. you're not in it for the money. You're not in it for the title. Yeah. You're not in yeah. it because it's sexy. Right. It's like we're in this together because yeah. we want to grow something as family and friends. Yeah, absolutely. What's your guys' process for making big decisions? Um, so any big decision, we, we it's, it's kind of a, we, we'll do like a vote. I would say, you know, we kind of take everyone's opinion and pull on that um, and kind of base it off that, really. Anything that's kind of day-to-day small, um, we leave that to, like, managers in the shop, myself, and then one of uh, my partners, Joel. Generally, him and I will kind of have those conversations. Anything that's bigger picture, we kind of, uh, I think anything that's like a $10,000 decision or more is something that we got to get everyone's opinion on. It's kind of how we, that that's kind of the line there. That's a really good threshold. Yeah, yeah. How do you guys create kind of balance and manage stress? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, that goes into you know we have such a good team that if you know someone needs a day off or can't make it in or they need something covered, there's a line. There's three or four people that can do that, and you know that it'll get done, and you don't have to worry. Um, so it's really nice where like if someone is on vacation or you know, is sick or has a family emergency, they know that everything's taken care of, which is really nice. You know, you can go away and not have to, like, be checking your phone all the time. And because everyone's like, you're gone. Like, don't worry. I'm not going to call you. I'm going to, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like the unspoken rule. It's like if someone's away, let them be away. Like, we will all handle it. Things will be fine, you know. And so that's just one way, you know, that kind of helps with the stress of it all because it is, it can be, you know, when we first opened up, trying to stay you know being compliant with the state is just a very stressful you want to make sure that all pa- patient information is entered in correctly uh, from the time someone walks into the time they leave everything's in a compliance you know it's it's a lot we already had our first uh, biannual inspection with the state um, yeah and it went really well um, and you know we have a good relationship with our state agent as well I can call her and say hey you know I have this question or this happened or so and so and she's like yep this is how you fix it and it really is like you're gonna make mistakes um, it's all about just being transparent with them and letting them know, like, hey, we did this, you know, letting you know we, we caught it, we fixed it, you know, made the proper adjustments. And they're like, okay, great, that sounds good. Thank you so much. We appreciate you letting us, letting us know. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, just having everyone on the team, you know, it's a good balance of everyone being able to do, do all those things, mm-hmm. you know. And when you guys have questions and you don't know the answer to something, what kind of resources do you, you guys use to research? Um, well, we uh, a lot of the times we'll go to like our attorney group or even the city attorney here. Um, she's always answering her. She'll answer her phone nine out of ten times. You call her, and if yeah, which is really nice. Yeah because um, obviously she's very in tune with the market, not only here and what the ordinance is here, but at a state level as well. So she's a great resource. Um, many members of City Hall, we, well, I'll call them or email them and ask them about a question. Um, and then other, other you know, relationships that we've developed with other license holders who have been in it a little bit longer than us, uh, different processors, uh, the transport companies have been great um, resources they you know because they kind of work with everyone they see it from all sides mm-hmm. and so they've been a great resource um, building those relationships if we have questions we call them just get people who are in the industry really you know 
um, and people who are like us in the same boat, small mom and pop shops that are figuring this out, you know, at the same level as we are. A lot of a lot of times we'll call and be like, hey, you know, like we kind of ran into this. What, have you ran into this yet? Like, you know, oh yeah, okay, great. This is how you do it. Sweet, thank you. You know, like so. We definitely have a lot of resources for that, which is nice. Um, yeah, it's been good. That's good. That's yeah. good that people are like friendly and open and willing to work together. Yeah, we that's been our get experience. That vibe in this industry. Yeah, like, it's very community driven. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been everyone's been very willing and open to answer any questions and, and be as helpful as they can. Which you know we try to be as well for anyone who comes in who's kind of in the early stages of application or you know just opening up you know we're like oh yeah we just went through that you know this is kind of what we ran into you know so yeah. there's definitely that that feeling that sense in the industry is everyone's very you know community-based and like trying to help each other out and everyone succeed you know yeah I'm re I really enjoy that it's very energizing yeah it's not yeah. something you experience in every industry. right absolutely yeah so it's, it's good to see for people that are considering getting into the cannabis industry what advice or insight would you have for them um, definitely find an attorney that you like <laughs> and kind of have them walk you through everything because it's very complicated um, and transparency just make sure that you're transparent with yourself your team your attorney and the state and that's the best way to to get through it all it's just to be is open and divulge uh, as much information as you can, um, and that's just going to lead to your success and approval and licensing. Excellent. Yeah. So, where can people find North Coast? You can find North Coast online at northcoastprovisions.com. We are also on Instagram, which I think is North Coast Provisions. Do you know I what it you're is? You're right. Yeah. I, I should know that, but again, I'm not right. the social That's media right. You're guy. not the social media expert social media of the guy. company. Yes, yes. Um, on Instagram, we're on Weed Maps and Leafly as well. Excellent. Uh, where we update deals, specials, hours, menu items, things like that, events. Um, yeah. And what's the address of your provisioning? Uh, yeah, we are located at 922 East Beecher Street in Adrian, Michigan. Excellent. And what can people expect from North Coast in the future? Uh, expect us to continue educating and continue providing quality medicine to our patients and um, hopefully expanding and opening more locations. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Sean, for taking yeah, the time yeah, thank to you. talk to Cannabis Curious. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. And we will keep following your journey. Awesome. There you have it. Another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. What a fun conversation with Sean. Such an insightful discussion on the retail side of legal cannabis and the licensing process here in Michigan. As you heard in the conversation, North Coast currently has a provisioning center open on East Beecher and Adrian. So if you're in the area or driving through the area, you definitely should check them out. And they're also in the process of building out a Class C grow facility and have been approved for a processor license as well. So North Coast definitely has a very bright future here in the Michigan cannabis industry, and I'm excited to follow their journey. Thank you for listening. Bye, guys.